This is the Rounds Table. So welcome to another episode of the Rounds Table. My name is Paul Bunce. I'm an infectious disease and internal medicine physician at the University of Toronto. And with me is my co-host for today's episode, Dr. Andrew Smagus. Andrew. Good evening. I'm Andrew Smagus, uh, a general internist from uh, Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Excellent. So Andrew, why don't we start with your paper of the week? <clears throat> Absolutely. So we'll get right into things. So the paper that we're going to start off discussing this week is from a recent uh, edition of the CMHA. And the title is The Association Between Home Care Visits and Same-Day Emergency Department Use, a Case Crossover Study. And that comes to us from Jones et al. from McMaster. And I'll just start off by saying the bottom line in this study is that Patients receiving publicly funded home care were found to have an increased likelihood of visiting the emergency department on days of a home care nursing visit. Now, we'll get into the details of the study, but just off the top, what that means for the provision of health care, I think, ends up being a to-be-determined answer. However, it does raise some important questions regarding how we provide care for an increasingly complex population of patients. So Andrew, I think this is a very important study. Why did you choose it for discussing today? The main reason I chose it is because of the important questions. I think it opens up for medicine and healthcare in general. You know, if you move back a little bit from the study, we know that healthcare systems around the country are dealing with an increased volume of patients, and that is putting a strain that everyone feels on inpatient services, on emergency departments, as well as on home care services. And with that extra strain, there has been an attempt to shift a lot of care to the outpatient setting. And this study took a very granular look at some of the challenges that can arise from that shift. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about the details of the study? What was the design? How did they look at this? Yeah, absolutely. So the study, it, it starts off asking the question, is there an association between home care visits and same-day emergency department visits among patients receiving publicly funded home care. Now, I think for most of us who practice in an inpatient setting, which is certainly where I do most of my, my time, there's this hope that a lot of home care services will prevent an emergency department visit or prevent an admission. Interestingly, the author's hypothesis was a little bit counter to that. They actually thought that with increased nursing visits via home care, you would actually see an increased number of emergency department visits. And, and their thinking was that nurses, because of their expertise, would actually be able to pick up either fulminant or brewing medical conditions, maybe not have the resources to help them out to a sufficient degree in the community, therefore referring the patient to the emergency department. And I think that using that hypothesis, this, these authors set up this study as, a, as an attempt to inform healthcare services. Now, in terms of the design, it gets a bit interesting here. In terms of the patients analyzed in the study, the authors used multiple databases to select patients. And basically, to, to get in to the analysis, you had to be over the age of 19. You had to receive care in the area around Hamilton, Ontario. You had to be receiving publicly funded home care, so uh, private pay, uh, or out-of-pocket pay, you weren't included in, in this study. And as well, in order to be included in this analysis, you had to have an emergency department visit. Now, where it gets particularly interesting is with the methods. And I'm going to apologize if I'm a little bit superficial about this, but I'll do the best I can. 
The authors used a, a case crossover design. And the reason for selecting that is that it's, it's an effective design when one wants to evaluate a, a transient exposure, for example, a home care visit. And in this design, cases serve as their own controls. So basically, you need to do three things in this type of design. So one, you have to select your cases. In this study, the cases were the days on which the patient visited the emergency department. The second step, you have to select your controls. And the way they do that is they basically turn back the clock and they use a, a window period of seven days before the emergency department to find days when those same patients did not visit the emergency department. And the key aspect to selecting the window period is you want to pick a period that is pretty similar to the period where you're getting your cases from. And that's why they use that, that one week period beforehand, because the theory is those days were essentially the same as the case days. So first step, select the cases. Two, select the controls from that window period. And three, define the exposure. In this case, the exposure was home care visits. So once you have those three things set up, Basically, then, as you take a look at the cases, you take a look at the controls, and you see how the exposure differs between the cases and the controls. And essentially, that becomes their primary outcome, how the exposure differs on the days of an emergency department visit versus the days without an emergency department visit. So that, that's actually a very elegant design, and I think it's intuitive, but also very rational from a research point of view. So... Can you go into, again, for us in detail, what were the results that they found? Uh, yes, I will do that. And I hope it's eloquent, but I also hope my description of it is correct. So the main results I want to focus on are, are presented in figure one of this study. And basically, they boil down to this. Number one, patients had an increased likelihood of visiting the emergency department on days on which they were visited by a home care nurse. Number two, sort of the flip side of that, there was no change in the likelihood of visiting an emergency department on days in which they were visited by a home care physiotherapist, occupational therapist, social worker, or personal support worker. So that is to say the likelihood of an emergency department visit went up only on the days of a home care visit by a nurse, not by any other form of therapist. And then the third important point is that the association between a nursing visit and an emergency department visit appeared to be stronger for those emergency departments in which the patient did not require an admission to hospital and as well were deemed to have lower CTAS scores, so deemed to be of lower acuity upon presentation to the emergency department. Okay, so there's there's a lot of very interesting results from this study and a, a lot of food for thought. Um, how do you take or how do you interpret this information and how does this reflect on your own experience as a, an internal medicine physician? In interpreting those results, I sort of go back to you know that original bias as, as an inpatient physician where you know, I think a lot of us hope or believe, perhaps is the better term, that stronger home care limits the need for emergency departments visits and inpatient admissions. 
But I think these results suggest that the authors were, were quite correct. And the fact that emergency department visits seemed more likely on days on which patients were visited by a home care nurse. And I think it lends credence to their thoughts that, you know, perhaps these nurses are picking up a lot of brewing medical conditions that they don't feel adequately supported to deal with in, in the community. So this study shows that more patients are seeing emergency room physicians after being seen by home care nurses. Is that a good thing? Or do you think it's a good thing? Or how do you interpret it as, as a good or a bad thing? So I think we have to be careful in making those assessments. So before I sort of do a deep dive into that question, I'll just say first thing about these results is we have to be a little bit careful with the interpretation because one, obviously, with the retrospective nature of this study, we know we can't infer causality. We, we can't say that it's been determined that home care nursing visits cause the emergency department visits. It may very well be the flip side, that patients more likely to visit the emergency department were also more likely to need a nursing visit on that, on that same day. So this study tells us nothing about causality. Uh, two, the other thing we just have to be careful with this study design is with the method by which the controls are selected. As I mentioned before, you have to be careful with the window period from which you draw your controls. And you really want it to be as similar as possible to the cases, you know, with the exception of the exposure that you select. So it, it's hard to really tell in what way the window period that these authors selected might have differed from the days that these patients visited the emergency department. Nonetheless, it, it actually seems that they did a pretty good job selecting that window period because when they ran the analysis through additional sensitivity analyses, they got similar results with a three-day window period, with a five-day window period, as they did with a seven-day window period. So they actually seem to do pretty good there. So from what you're saying, I, I mean, I'm thinking about like balancing strengths and weaknesses of the paper and the research methodology. Do you think that the results are valid? Do you think that this is an accurate representation of what is happening? I think they are. And I think that that's one of the strengths of this study is that in some ways, I think it does force us to flip some of our assumptions. And I think as well, in doing so, it, it really is an opportunity to reflect on the bigger picture. If, if we kind of zoom out a bit from the specifics of this study, and if we look at the way that the healthcare system overall provides care for you know, an increasingly complex population of patients, I think what we see looking at the whole picture is that one, hospitals are struggling to keep up, two, emergency departments are struggling to keep up. And three, home care is struggling to keep up as well. And I think if the author's assumptions are true, that a lot of nurses are perhaps feeling that they, they are not adequately supported. And I think that that sort of leaves us to a part where if we look at the system, honestly, we can say that there have been a lot of attempts to rearrange how we provide care. But we may actually be putting a lot of healthcare professionals in positions where they're not entirely comfortable and asking them to deal with situations that fall a bit out of their strike zone. And I think that that's a very important point to bring forward because in some ways it does unfortunately lead to a, a spot where we have to question whether or not rearranging is the best strategy or whether we have to take a serious look at whether additional capacity is needed for this system. I think that that's a very serious question facing us. And I think this study brings it a little bit closer to the forefront of mainstream attention. I think it's valuable for many reasons, but for that in particular. So I totally agree with you. And I think it does highlight gaps in our overall 
responsibility to care for our patients. And uh, it certainly does highlight that an inadequacy of a simple approach to care that sort of assumes that patients can be managed as outpatients when sometimes they need connections to physicians more urgently. Yeah, and I think as well, it, it even highlights how difficult these answers are because one of the suggestions the authors quite rightly put forward is, well, maybe this is an argument for stronger ties between primary care and home care. And that's certainly true. However, I think the, the other side of that coin is, is how much additional capacity do primary care offices have right now? You know, it, it, in a perfect world, certainly that, that would be great. But even that is recipe for an, another pocket of healthcare to start bursting at the seams. It probably is already. Yeah, no, and I, I'll tell you that I, as an infectious disease consultant, have urgent referrals from outpatient home care physicians and nurses, and my capacity is not able to keep up with this, and I can't imagine what a primary care physician would have to do to keep up with that level of care when we're actually caring for what used to be inpatients in an outpatient setting. So I think it does highlight a lot of issues. Yep. So after I've rambled... We are going to move seamlessly from that paper onto our second paper for today. And uh, Paul, would you mind telling us about the topic you have selected to discuss? Thanks, Andrew. So I chose the longest title I could find. And so pardon me for saying it. The title is Prophylactic Effect of Trimethoprim Sofamethoxazole for Pneumocystis Pneumonia in patients with rheumatic diseases exposed to prolonged high-dose glucocorticoids. Uh, this is a paper published by Park et al. in the Annals of Rheumatic Diseases, published in March of 2018. So this is actually a very helpful article for people who are managing patients with glucocorticoids. Basically, the bottom line is they looked at patients who received glucocorticoids for autoimmune diseases, and they measured the degree of immunosuppression as well as the duration of immunosuppression. And they compared those who did receive prophylaxis for pneumocystis pneumonia against those who did not receive prophylaxis against pneumocystis pneumonia. And they found that in patients who received prophylaxis, it was pretty close to 100% effective. And I'll go into this in a bit more detail, but it, prophylaxis was near 100% effective in preventing pneumocystis. And the rate of pneumocystis pneumonia in the patients overall who did not receive prophylaxis was significant. They had 30 cases of pneumocystis pneumonia and they had a significant mortality of these patients in their cohort. Okay, so I actually have quite a few questions to ask about this study and I think they'll roll out as we discuss it. Just before we go any further, why was it that, uh, that you selected this paper? So I, as an infectious disease doctor, I have an interest in the prevention of infections and in people who are immunocompromised and immunosuppressed. And I've given a, a lot of talks and given a lot of advice about why we need to worry about infections in the immunocompromised patient. But the evidence is actually not that good to this point. And so this study actually brings us a lot of very concrete evidence that's tangible that we can use in our clinical care. 
So I think it's very useful, and I think it's something that can be applicable to a wide array of patients. Okay. And if I may ask as well, I think everyone appreciates the need for pneumocystis prophylaxis in patients you know, with HIV, with a CD4 count under 200. Do you perceive that there might be a gap in the prophylaxis for this patient population? So I'm always dreadful of saying these words. As I've been told, the most dangerous three words in medicine are in my experience. Uh, in my experience, clinicians have variable concern about opportunistic infections when patients are immunosuppressed. And I've heard the statement, patients with lupus do not get PCP as a factual statement. I've heard these statements. And the truth is, patients who are immunosuppressed to any degree have a variable risk of developing opportunistic infections, and pneumocystis pneumonia is one of those infections. So I think it's an underestimated risk, and it's a little bit of a platform that I am trying to advocate from. All right. Well, then with that preamble, can you tell us a bit about the study design? Sure. So this was a study that was, it was a retrospective study design in South Korea. They basically looked at patients over a 10-year period who had rheumatologic diseases, who received a prolonged course over a month of high dose, generally greater than 30 milligrams of prednisone or equivalent. And they looked at these patients and they compared those who received prophylaxis with trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or SEPTRA versus those who did not. And then they looked at the rates of development of pneumocystis pneumonia. And in terms of the results, what they found was they had over 1,500 patients who received a course of high-dose corticosteroids. And of those, about 250 had prophylaxis with TMPSMX. In their whole cohort, 30 people developed PCP, and of those, 11 patients actually died, which is in keeping with prior evidence that people who develop pneumocystis pneumonia outside of HIV have a higher mortality rate. They had zero occurrences of pneumocystis pneumonia in the patients who, who were on the TMPSMX prophylaxis group, except for one patient who was in that cohort, but had stopped the medication early and then developed PCP afterwards. So it demonstrated a clear evidence of the rates of pneumocystis pneumonia, the rates of mortality, and the absolute benefits of prophylaxis for this medication. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, based on those results, it, it seems like we're dealing with a treatment that's highly effective. Now, the, the flip side of that, and I think one of the other concerns with SEPTRA is often with, with side effects. I, I think it has the reputation of not being the, the safest drug out there? So yeah, so you, you, you bring up a good point. So uh, the most common, commonly concerned side effect of TMPSMX is Stevens-Johnson syndrome. There are many, many side effects of these, this medication, and I totally am aware of them. So the point is, it's a drug that has a lot of baggage, but it is so effective in preventing 
infections. And so what was amazing about this study is they also looked at the side effects. And so they looked at the people who received the medication and who had to discontinue and who had side effects. So, you know, the number needed to treat was 52. So if you take 52 people who are on moderate to high dose steroids in rheumatologic diseases, the number needed to treat with prophylaxis is 52. The number needed to harm for even a moderate side effect is 130. And only one patient in this entire cohort developed what was consistent with Stevens-Johnson syndrome. So yes, it is an existing side effect that we're aware of, but the risks are far below the benefits of prophylaxis for this medication in this cohort. All right, yeah, so it looks like we, we've got a, an, an effective treatment that also seems to be safe for, for this indication. So things are looking good. On that note, can you tell us a bit about the possible limitations of this study? Which is to say, is there any reason we shouldn't believe these results? So it is a retrospective study, so we always have to look at it that way. Uh, we also have to recognize that in this cohort, the only prophylaxis against pneumocystis was TMPSMX and not some of the second-line agents. So we don't know if the evidence can be extended to those other medications. And the other really difficult part is, does this evidence extend to patients with other diseases who are receiving high-dose immunosuppression for skin conditions or other conditions that are inflammatory, do we need to extend this data to those cohorts? So I think there's a lot of limitations in terms of authenticating the data, but it does certainly give us ideas and food for thought as we are managing these patients and certainly room for further research. But as a study on its own, I think it was a very high quality for sure. It seems like it's, it's, it's a sound study. Can I just ask, with respect to these results, now you've mentioned that with the mortality perhaps being a little bit higher in these patients with rheumatic diseases compared to what might be seen with HIV patients, that sounds like an expected finding. Was, was there anything about the results in this study that was surprising to you? Actually, not really. For me, it was a great illustration of the rates of the development of pneumocystis and the development of side effects from medications. And if you ask physicians who manage HIV-positive patients, we know that TMPSMX is exceedingly effective at preventing pneumocystis pneumonia. It is one of the most reliable medications as a prophylaxis that I've ever encountered. So I think there were no surprises. It was more that it was a nice study to give me numbers and more material to convey to people. So in what I hear you saying in that is that this might not be a study that will change guidelines and maybe it shouldn't even change our practice but it does sound like it will provide some benefits or some additional ammunition to the way we practice. Is that fair? So I'll disagree with you a little bit there because I think the practice is entirely variable and different rheumatologists and different doctors who use immunosuppressants have highly variable practices in terms of prevention of pneumocystis and different ID doctors have different practices. And I hope that 
this material will help consolidate and bring us all closer together to practice in a more consistent manner. It's always a risk benefit and it's always a patient focused discussion, but there's very good evidence in this paper. And I, I actually think it, it will impact the consistency of care that we provide. Sounds good. Now, if I could just go a, a little bit deeper into that, there, there was one thing that is might be a little bit hidden in the text, but you can find it in the section in the results on risk-benefit analysis of TMP-SMX, to use the vernacular, where overall the risk-benefit ratio seemed to be strongly leaning towards benefit in the overall patient population. But they did sneak in a little line at the end saying that patient, the subgroup on a lower steroid dose, the number needed to treat was a, was a bit higher and, and it wasn't that different from the number needed to harm. And just looking at it, it looks like it might have been a little bit higher. Should we put any weight on that? Or how? Or perhaps a better way to say that is how should we interpret that subgroup analysis? So I totally agree with you. And the decision for prophylaxis against pneumocystis is always a risk benefit. And you always have to take into consideration the underlying disease the degree of immunosuppression and the duration of immunosuppression. And I would guide our listeners to the editorial that's associated with this article, which can be found on the website, which does give a little bit more of a practical approach to how to manage these patients with PCP prophylaxis. Uh, it is a case-by-case -case, uh, discussion, but definitely those who are on lower dose shorter term, and some autoimmune diseases are less likely to be associated with the development of PCP. So it is a, a very case-by-case -case discussion, but it warrants a discussion and a thoughtful discussion by the physician and the patient to decide on whether prophylaxis is indicated. That's a great question. All right, and, and a great paper and a great discussion. <clears throat> Sounds like this really will inform those discussions between the healthcare teams and patients with regards to, to this topic. Any final words on this study, Dr. Bunce? So, Andrew, moving on, I can't get as excited as Kieran about his favorite part of the podcast. But as we move on to <laughs> Kieran's favorite part of the podcast. We're going to talk about the good stuff segment. So Andrew, what are you reading and make us happy? All right, I, I will do my best. Maybe together we could match Kieran's exuberance to this section. Uh, what I have read recently is a perspective piece in the New England Journal that I, I, I thought was very interesting. And it was in the May 17th uh, edition. It was called Leadership Development in Medicine. It's a very interesting read and makes some excellent points about the need to develop leaders within healthcare, especially those that can deal with the growing and in many cases, accelerating complexity within healthcare. And the uh, authors sort of argue that because that's developing in healthcare, it's a call to improve the manner in which we develop our leaders. They then go out to outline some strategies that they believe in. And I think that that's a very interesting read in and of itself. Now, what I thought was particularly interesting was, in addition to what they said, what they didn't say. Because when I think of you know, leaders 
and you know, certainly the leaders that I've looked up to, one of the many things that's always struck me is the creativity of these individuals and the ingenuity of these individuals. And I, I'm not sure that that sort of emerges to the forefront of this article, but I think it's a very important point that needs to be highlighted and, and not only highlighted, but articulated and, and remembered because think, you know, if I can go back to the leaders that I've always looked up to, there are people who don't necessarily create their times. Uh, they're not a reflection of their time. And the way that they're able to do that is through the force of their intelligence and their ability to be to be creative. So, I, so this paper really uh, got me thinking about that. And, and, you know, it was one of those papers that just made you think and consider things at a, at a deeper level. So I think it was, it was, uh, it, it's an interesting read for, for those reasons at the very least. I agree. And I, I read it as well. And it reminds me of also what makes a great teacher and how the greatest teachers that we've ever had didn't have teaching and education. They were just brilliant on their own. It, it, exactly, exactly the point I was, I was trying to make. So I have been reading a number of articles related to organ transplants. One of my inpatients uh, received a successful organ transplant just this past month. And so I look into uh, the availability of organs and organ donation. And so one of the biggest issues relates to donors who are hepatitis C positive. And with the current opioid epidemic, which is an absolute tragedy in North America, one of the subsequent outcomes is that we are having a higher rate of available organs. And the fact that we can actually transplant organs from patients who are hepatitis C positive to a new person and treat the organ recipient with some of the new direct acting antiviral therapies and cure them so they don't develop hepatitis C. I think this vastly increases our organ donor pool for many conditions that are life ending or life threatening. And so it's, it's just an interesting transition that we're dealing with when it comes to organ donation. And I also wonder with the advances in HIV, I'm very curious if at some point donors who are HIV positive will have accepted organs for transplantation. So it's very interesting spectrum of literature and it's developing and it will certainly develop over the next many years as well. Yeah, absolutely. If I can just maybe just make a comment on, on the other side of that coin, away from the, the transplant aspect of it really is amazing what is happening with hepatitis C. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to realize how, you know, when, when the change is happening in front of your very eyes, how dramatic and how significant it is. But this is a major, major breakthrough in medicine. So just to save our audience any more like listening to us. Andrew, do you have any other points you want to add before we end our show? I am out of points. I am out of exuberance. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Andrew. And uh, thank you for listening to The Round Stable. And hopefully, Andrew and I will be back next season for uh, some more episodes talking about anything that is relevant for the internist or physician. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Welcome back, listeners. I'm Shaliza Halani, the director of Special Segments. I'm joined by Emily Hughes, the producer of the show. 
We are both medical students at the University of Toronto. Hey, Shaliza. It's great to be back on the air together. What are we covering today? Today, we're chatting about hepatitis C treatments. Start us off. How prevalent is this disease? According to the World Health Organization 2016 data, there are 80 million patients who are chronically infected with hepatitis C worldwide. Approximately 16% of people infected with hepatitis C develop cirrhosis 20 years after acute infection and 31% after 30 years. Progression of liver fibrosis depends on factors such as alcohol consumption, age at time of infection, male sex, and HIV co-infection. Tell us about some of the historical treatments for this disease. Until a few years ago, there were only two drugs that were approved for hepatitis C treatment, a long-lasting form of interferon alpha called pegylated interferon alpha, peg interferon, and a broad-spectrum anti-HCV drug called ribavirin. The treatment regimens for both agents were lengthy, about 24 to 48 weeks. Efficacy of treatment is measured by sustained virologic response, known as the SVR, which is defined as having undetectable hepatitis C RNA levels following completion of treatment. Only 54 to 63% of people who took the prescribed course actually achieved an SVR, and patients often withdrew from treatment because of major side effects such as anemia, leukopenia, and depression. Teratogenicity is an important major side effect of ribavirin. It doesn't sound like the greatest selection of treatments. Tell us about some of the new ones that are coming out. Are they any better? Over the past few years, health systems around the world approved the use of interferon-free regimens for treatment of hepatitis C, which are administered orally, require shorter treatment duration, and have higher likelihood of SVR with fewer adverse events. Type and duration of treatment vary according to genotype and cirrhotic status. There are six major hepatitis C genotypes. Hepatitis C1 is the most common. However, taken together, hepatitis C2 through 6 make up more than half of all hepatitis C infections. The first of these medications was Harvoni, which targets genotype 1. The second was Sovaldi, which targets genotype 1, 2, and 3. There are other newer agents that are newly introduced to cover all six genotypes. These agents, including Epclusa and Maverit, are shorter and are ribavirin-free treatments. These drugs sound great. Are there any challenges with these new drugs that weren't encountered with the old ones? Barriers to hepatitis C treatment include diagnosis to specialist referral, lack of awareness of infection, fear of side effects, poor adherence, and comorbid conditions that impede treatment. Cost of these new medications is another barrier. Epclusa is $60,000 for a 12-week course, and Harvoni and Sovaldi range from $69,000 to $110,000. There has been controversy as to whether these direct-acting antivirals should be used if data has not confirmed or rejected their effect on hepatitis C-related illness or all-cause mortality. However, it is argued that it would be unethical to have studies to compare treatment with control groups that receive delayed treatment, especially since cirrhosis and its complications take decades to develop. SVR, the surrogate marker, has been related to improvement in liver fibrosis and reduced risk of hepatocellular carcinoma and liver-related mortality. How times have really changed. You're right, Emily. Things are really shifting. In summary, these direct-acting antivirals have higher cure rates, greater than 90%, less side effects, shorter timeframes of treatment ranging from 12 to 24 weeks, and less heavy pill burdens in comparison to the PEG interferon regimens. It is expected that interferon-free regimens lead to better adherence and tolerability and overall compliance. The future is bright. Agreed. Thanks, Shaliza. Thanks for having me. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, 
audio editor Emilio Garcias Flores, communications director Anthony Maher, segment developer Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research because who knows what they have in store for us. <laughs>